Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here in the third sub-basement studios of the Ministry of SNARK. And spread out across the world, we have a great group of commentators ready to comment on all the post-Thanksgiving developments on the planet. In London, England, we have the the long-lost Corey Shockey, who we have not heard from in a couple of weeks. But I'm so glad to be back. We are so glad to have you back. Um, and uh, did what did you do for Thanksgiving? Uh, you know, I sadly have made a landfall in a country where it is not celebrated. So I stomped around sulkily <laughs> and am so delighted to report that the people who work for me threw an afternoon Thanksgiving of pumpkin and pecan pies. So even though I'm a really demanding boss, they were in the spirit of Thanksgiving. It made well, me joyful. Well, that is that is joyful. Uh, something to be thankful for. Also joining us, we have Rula Jebrial, who is someplace. Where are you, Rula? Uh, hi, David. I just came back from Europe where the European Union convened hearings about the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, and I was there as an advisor, uh, I just arrived to the U.S., so I'm in New York. Okay, well, welcome to New York, and I'd love to follow up with you, on, you. On, on what you're talking about, or have been talking about, uh, in the EU on the Khashoggi uh, um, hearings. And uh, here in Washington, D.C., we have Mika Oyang of The Third Way. <laughs> Did you Hello. at least have an opportunity to celebrate Thanksgiving properly, Mika? I did, and it was great because for the first time ever, I ordered Thanksgiving dinner from a restaurant instead of slaving in my kitchen the whole time. Oh, what a luxury. It was yeah. amazing. Very nice. Very ni- Yeah, we went to a restaurant because we happened to be in Michigan, uh, and they served a very traditional Thanksgiving dinner, and then the gimmick at the restaurant was at the end of the meal they gave us the whole meal over again as leftovers. They said, here, here are your leftovers. It wouldn't be Thanksgiving without leftovers. Oh, that's really understand. It was very, it was kind of, it was, it was kind of sweet. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly because of Thanksgiving and the risks she undertook, uh, which I'm sure <laughs> outstripped any of the risks she took when she was working for the CIA, uh, we have Emily Brandwin, who will soon be the host of uh, Washington for Beautiful People, our new podcast from the left coast. Uh, Emily, you survived Thanksgiving. The, Just the- barely, and it was much scarier than anything I did at the CIA. I hosted 22 people, deep fried a turkey. 
it was a little intense. No one got E. coli. No one got salmonella. So I figure it was a big win for everybody. Mission accomplished. Hang the banner on the carrier. Yeah. And you know what's even worse is when I was done, like I was dreading this, but like excited, but dreading it. And that within about 10 minutes into it, I was inviting everybody for next year. It was like I couldn't help myself. I was like, so we're doing this next year. Everybody's going to come over, right? This is, this, this, this is, there is probably a foreign policy lesson in this, you know. It's like we never can quit while we're ahead. Um, I couldn't stop. I invited yeah. everybody. I literally went to everyone at every single table and said, you're coming back. You know, the invite's here. It, it, it was not, it was not my best moment. Well, if, if Corey's in the same situation next year, can she join you? <laughs> oh my God, absolutely. You can bring the green beans or do you want to do stuffing? One of the two. Whatever you'd like. If you want to do, if you want to bring a turkey, you can bring a turkey. That's fine too. I'm open. Okay. Well, that's, I'm, glad. I'm a giver. Yeah, you are. <laughs> and by being a taker, you've become a giver. I love that. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's Washington training for you. All right, so <laughs> let's get to, uh, there's a lot of serious stuff going on in the world, and um, I, I'll just sort of take it uh, in no particular order. But let me start with you, Rula, since you have gotten back. Uh, the, the European Union uh, has reacted to the Khashoggi uh, hearings in a in a, a murder in a kind of a serious way, including uh, we note that both Germany and Denmark have cut off arms sales and restricted travel to all those involved with the murder. Something the United States seems to be afraid to do. Apparently, uh, little Denmark and Germany are less afraid of Saudi economic reaction than the United States. And I'm wondering, what's your takeaway coming back from Europe and seeing their views on all this? Uh, thank you, David. Uh, yes, the world has moving away from America. They are, America is left behind. America first, as we suspected, is becoming America alone. And the world is not willing to put up with tyrants and dictators who murder journalists uh, for the crimes of having an opinion. So Germany, and I think it all started with the Iran deal where Europe decided, and they're already negotiating France and Germany, how to bypass all these sanctions and still do business with Iran. Now they are taking it to the next level and they're banning. There's an embargo on arms sales. There was three, four hearings, uh, one about Jamal Khashoggi. Another one um, was about the eight human rights activists, women activists, uh, who've been tortured, raped, kept in total isolation for the last eight months in Saudi Arabia. So the Europeans are leading the way and paving the way for serious economic sanctions, hoping to implement the Magnitsky Act, the global Magnitsky Act against human rights violators. And talking to European diplomats, when I asked them what they think of the CIA report, they all were sure that President Trump will, will basically uh, discredit his own intelligence agencies as he did before. So they, were, they weren't relying on the CIA to, be, to convince President Trump. They knew that President Trump will side and defend a murderer, Mohammed bin Salman, because most of them are convinced that the financial ties of the Kushners, of the Trumps, uh, what they call America's ruling family, will always trump America's foreign policy. And it's a tragedy. You could see around the world that 
what Trump accused President Obama <clears throat> of turning America into, a laughingstock, he is turning America into the best friend of tyrants and dictators. Well, I, you know, I think, you know, that um, even as uh, 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 strong as the language that you use there is, uh, in, 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 I, it's quite moderate and it's, it's, it's actually a factual depiction of the situation. And Corey, when I listen to it, you know, one of the things that comes away quite apart from the injustice and, and this appalling story, by the way, of torturing these women who in some cases were protesting for the most fundamental kind of rights, the right to drive and so forth. Um, it's not only, um, uh, uh, an abomination from the point of view of justice. Um, uh, and it's not only isolating the United States, but from a strategic perspective, uh, when you combine it with the Iran uh, uh, nuclear treaty pullout, it's, it's, it's creating a shift where the Europeans uh, are going to draw closer to the Iranians and uh, farther away from the Saudis and, um, and 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 it's in 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 in, in many respects going to rebalance uh, uh, the 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 West's orientation towards the entire region, don't you think? Um, I certainly think that's a possibility, but I also think it's a little bit too soon to tell, because while I agree with everything Rula said, uh, the president and his family are not the only voices in American policy. Uh, and Congress and the American public also have a lot to say about this and have a lot of influence over this. That's one thing. I think, you know, the president may choose to sell arms and continue supporting the war in Yemen, but Congress actually controls those things. And particularly the House of Representatives is unenthusiastic about the president's uh, direction on this. So I think we're likely to, to see a more activist Congress, and that will balance the ledger a little bit. Although, again, I agree with the incredibly discouraging effect that the Trump administration's uh, willingness to ignore the facts and indulge its fantasy. The other thing is that I'm not confident Europeans deserve yet all of the praise that uh, that Rula offers them. I mean, how many European governments have actually passed the Magnitsky Act? Britain has. Has anyone else? Um, Not and, yet. But there are okay, so maybe, maybe this is a step towards that. it, and that would be wonderful. Um, and solidifying the conscience of liberal societies to act against um, the corruption and the undermining of our norms of, of the behavior of states towards citizens uh, would certainly be a wonderful thing. But uh, I would be curious how many European governments are actually selling weapons to the Saudis. So was this a gesture that's has profound economic consequences in the way that the Trump administration uh, negating the Iran agreement cost Boeing uh, $20 billion or whatever. Um, are there consequences to it or is it a statement? I value the statement. I welcome the statement. I hope it shames 
our own administration into doing their job and upholding our values and acknowledging the, the judgment of our own intelligence agencies. But I'm not quite ready to go as far down the, the U.S. Uh, has nothing to say on this and Europe has done everything on this. Okay, well, let's let's uh, not David, go. May I sure. jump in one second on this? Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark already had an agreement to sell weapons. My belief is for not big amounts of money. I mean, we're talking about uh, millions of euros, but not billions. Um, yes, the volume of trade weapon trade is not as big as America, but it's a significant, especially in this moment where Europeans are struggling economically compared to the rest of the world, especially the United States. It's not only symbolism. I was at those hearings, and I assure you, the amount of um, outrage that many MPs who were conservatives or liberal Democrats or, uh, as we call them, Republicans, were adamant. And they were talking about national security and stability of the region, especially stability of the region. And then most of them, they were concerned. How is this crown prince, who's crown prince now, who led the war into Yemen, so the, big, the, the richest country is bombing the poorest country, making deals with al-Qaeda in Yemen. They're talking about their national security. The proximity, the geographic proximity with Yemen is closer to Europe than to them. They pay the price of Hamad bin Salman policy. Yes, it's the Khashoggi case prompted a lot of the things, the human rights violations against these women. But Yemen is basically the number one issue for Europe. And they think if this guy can become king and govern for 40 years, what kind of policy is he going to enact and, and, and carry on, which will affect Europe sooner or later? They're not talking about economics. What they're talking about is national security regarding refugees, radicalization, and other issues that Europe is very concerned about. Yeah, I think Rula makes a really good point here about the long-term consequences and Europe seeing this through a much longer lens of what MBS's reign would mean for Saudi foreign policy. And, you know, in talking to, you know, looking at American defense contractors and their uh, sales to Saudi Arabia, there are some serious questions for them, I think, on long-term reputational risk uh, of selling to a client who is so willing to use their products in ways that they don't want to be associated with. The deaths of the school children in Yemen, it's not like people who, who are in Saudi Arabia expect MBS is going to make a change to the way that he operates. He's been succeeding in this for so long, and while Khashoggi is a tipping point, it's not like it's really going to result in a kinder, more realistic Saudi Arabia over the next 40 years. And, you know, the Trump administration is only looking at this one particular arms deal, but we're talking about a fundamental realignment of the region. And what does that mean for America's prospects as we go forward with this leader who is unstable and now has a checking influence from his father's concern, and there's still the risk that someone could say, you know, perhaps he can't be king. But once he's in the role of the sovereign for, uh, for Saudi Arabia, what's to stop him from acting in even worse ways? 
Well, and there's a lot of questions that come out of that. I, I want to come back to one in a moment because we uh, uh, there have recently been some talk that the Saudis are pushing for the U.S. aid on a nuclear deal. But Emily, even you know, right around the time that we've been recording this uh, episode, a story breaks on on uh, ABC. Uh, that Jared Kushner pushed to inflate the Saudi arms deal to $110 billion. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, also speaks to the points both Rula and Corey and Mika have made, which is the U.S. deal, which was the high stakes game that Trump wanted to have in this thing, is actually complete bullshit. First of all, there is no $110 billion deal. Uh, it was, you know, pumped up with lots of numbers from out-year deals for air tankers, you know, in the late 2020s. Secondly, most of the $14.5 billion in deals that have actually happened recently were undertaken under the Obama administration. Uh, and there has not been much additional activity in terms of those deals. So the the whole idea here is that this is once again an area where the, the fundamental reason that Trump is saying let's sell out U.S. human rights is BS. It's all BS. It's funny, someone mentioned unstable leader, and for a second I wasn't sure who you were talking about. And I was like, are we talking <laughs> Trump? Are we talking MBS? And I, had li- I was like, oh, okay, that's who we're talking about because both – seem equally as unstable. And of course it's BS. And of course that he ignored the CIA assessment that everybody else actually takes with I mean, the fact that we're even shocked that he ignored this assessment is, should be not shocking. And of course they inflated the numbers. I, I find all of this to be absolutely believable at this point. And it, it's just, it's so appalling and galling. And well, how must imagine. it feel? How must it feel in your old place of employment where, on the one hand, the president is saying, nope, don't believe it. And on the other hand, which, by the way, I'm sure they're feeling the same thing at the Environmental Protection Agency these days, but he's saying, nope, don't believe it. And on the other hand, I think it's very interesting because it does seem like the CIA is willing to stand up to Trump. And I've heard. Um, uh, uh, reports uh, in the past few hours, even where people like Lindsey Graham are saying, well, I'm going to get briefed by the CIA because he, 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 who has, you know, attached his lips firmly on Trump's behind, um, seems to be willing to part with him on this. Uh, and, and the CIA is willing to play um, uh, a spoiler on this a little bit. That That's quite contrary to the spirit within your former employer, is it not? Normally, we don't make news. And I always say, if, you know, if the CIA makes news, it's usually not for something good. And so the fact that they're standing up and having their voice heard and that Haspel is okay with it, I think really says something about the intelligence that they gathered and the the confidence that they have and also the commitment they have to make sure that the world knows of this intelligence because they know they have no they have no faith that the president will do anything with it. He was already convinced he was going to ignore it. There was, it, there was nothing that the CIA could provide that was going to change Trump's mind, clearly. And I think it was the only recourse in order to get some type of respect and some kind of truth out there. Okay, but can I uh, weigh in on the other side, which is uh, the notion that the CIA has a responsibility to get the truth out there and to um, to 
go outside the channels of providing clandestine intelligence information internal to the U.S. government makes me nervous. I feel like we're not going to like where this takes us. And, and as much as I agree with the sentiment that's behind everybody's positions, I, I'm still nervous about the CIA director considering herself a higher authority than anybody elected in deciding what we talk about in public and what is too... Um, and ought to remain in classified channels. Well, first of all, I don't, I, I don't know if, but, if that's been... I don't, is, I don't know that anybody said that. I mean, I, I think the CIA has a responsibility to the Congress, just as it has one to yes. the White House, right? Plus, there's a third party, if I may, here, and that's Turkey. On Turkish soil, that murder was committed, but... Uh, where was it concocted in the first place? It was concocted on U.S. soil. According to Gina Haspel, conversation with her counterpart in Turkey, who had hardcore evidence uh, of all the people who committed the crime, who they are, how close they are to Mohammed bin Salman, the phone conversation before the murder and after the murder. Even uh, they have a recording, an audio recording, that I am confident sooner or later will be leaked by someone or somebody. So Gina Haspel had no uh, alternative except to admit to the facts in front of her eyes, knowing perfectly that there's another foreign intelligence and maybe more has these information. She doesn't want to lose her credibility. She knows that she's not the only one who has had access to all of these information, all of these data, all of this facts, hardcore evidence. So when she is asked, of course she will provide what she knows is factual, truthful. Otherwise, remember, uh, I believe a week before the CIA released the report, uh, I believe the foreign minister of France uh, was asked in an interview if he heard the recording. He denied it. Well, within hours, the Turk said he's lying. Yeah. Corey, were, I also think it's a they lot. They made him hear the recording. So Gina Haspel is forced to say what she said. In the same time, I believe that she knows that she has a responsibility, as David said, towards the country, towards Congress. And I'm, I'm sure somewhere she thinks that she is, uh, you know, with this kind of president, where probably she has a hint of what kind of ties he has with the Saudis, his love affair with Tyrant. She needs to be on the side of the country at this point. So, and Corey, I think it's a lot to assume that she was the one who actually did the leaking. I mean, no. you know, an assessment like that gets shared widely inside the national security establishment and reporters are pretty well sourced. So it may have been that it wasn't her intent to put that out there, but the conclusion itself may have been something that other people felt necessary to share. We saw this all the time when I was on the intelligence committee, you know, basically as soon as something goes to the Hill, people in the executive branch feel emboldened to talk about it because now it's sort of like, well, it was out of our control and it may be out there. But, you know, I had this conversation with a former um, senior intelligence official about the challenges of walking into the White House and the tension between feeling like you should be on the team and telling people that what they're doing is working versus being the person who has to tell them the truth. And, you know, as much as I didn't think that Gina Haspel was the right person for the job, I do think that, you know, continuing to go in there and say, this is what we believe to be true is still an important thing 
to do, not just to the president, but to the rest of the national security establishment who receives those assessments of culpability and responsibility, because people need to know what's real and not make policy based on what the president wishes were real. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't, I didn't want to, I wasn't trying to imply that, that Haskell said, you know, shared this willingly. She just, she and the agency didn't walk it back once it was out there. And so that's what I was saying in terms of that. So, Corey, let me ask you a, a different question. For looking forward, okay, there's been talk about the U.S. helping the Saudis with a nuclear deal. Uh, very shortly, there's going to be a G20 summit in which many of the leaders of the world, including Trump, are going to be presented with the opportunity of reacting to MBS in public. And Trump has said, you know, well, if he's there, I'll, you know, I'll embrace him. You know, this, this will be a chance for a normal meeting. This relationship is super important to us. So I think one of the things we have to look at is, you know, the relationship going forward and whether the errors made by the U.S. so far or the, 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 the bad choices made by the U.S. so far, if you view them that way, are actually about to be compounded. And I'm wondering what your outlook is and what do you think the, should happen? So the NATO allies have just decided that they're not next year going to hold a summit at which all the heads of state gather to celebrate 70 years of the NATO alliance because their previous engagements with the leader of the free world have led them to be hesitant that he can be trusted in that kind of surrounding because his behavior is so erratic and so antagonistic towards our friends that um, they would rather not celebrate 70 years of the NATO alliance then have to run the risks of President Trump pulling the temple down on everybody's heads. So I think that that validates people's concern about his behavior. And as Rula mentioned at the start, the kind of weird um, affection the president seems to have for authoritarians. Um, and in particular, the the policy so heavily weighted on Saudi Arabia. Um, but I also think the president, on a couple of, um, in a couple of instances, when he believed there was going to be a price to pay for it, was even willing to write off Jared Kushner, like sort of saying, well, I don't know that they really knew each other, um, of uh, Mohammed bin Salman and Kushner sort of suggesting they were just the two young guys at the party, so had, you know, talked in the corner kind of thing. So I do think the possibility exists that the public outrage that's so widespread has a possibility of constraining the president's behavior. But touch and go in all these circumstances with him. Uh, as the G7 in Ottawa showed, as every time he's in the presence of German Chancellor Angela Merkel shows like he's yeah, just she don't she don't like him. Yeah, and, <laughs> but and no, he, neither President Macron. I mean, the French summit, the French uh, reunion for the 100th uh, anniversary of uh, the end of World War One was a moment of embarrassment. He didn't show up 
when there's 80 world leaders reunited, the image of Germany and France united and hugging each other, celebrating the armistice, it was a moment of unity. Then he started weeping against President Macron, because President Macron talked about um, populism and about nationalism, which is a treasonous idea against actual patriotism. The moment this guy that talks about, you know, President Trump talked about himself of being tough, surrounded by government, and then he doesn't even show up to, to salute the veterans of Veteran Day or even to honor the fallen of World War One. So he starts attacking President Macron. He attacked uh, Angela Merkel. He attacked Theresa May. He is not only despised, they look at him as, they look at him the way, same way they look at anybody that is a persona non grata. I just want to remind everybody that Mohammed bin Salman kicked uh, off a tour of the Arab world before going to the G20 summit because he decided to test the water. Well, too bad. Tunisians are putting uh, billboards saying he's not welcome and Mr. Bonso is not welcome. He landed in Egypt today. He was received by the president, but there's no um, official press conference because they are concerned that there will be protesters. People around the Arab world are still, still remember what Jamal Khashoggi used to write. And he said, the Saudis, we Saudis deserve better. We need free speech. In order to enter the 21st century, we need some kind of basic human rights and dignity for the man. He believed in the spirit of the Arab Spring. So Mohammed bin Salman will have a small taste. I believe the European leader will treat him as the head of a parallel state. And President Trump will be the only one that will welcome him somehow or embrace him. If you saw the image of President Trump standing next to Angela Merkel and Macron, then you saw the only time he smiled is when Putin came and embraced him and shook his hand. This is, and if you looked at the faces of Angela Merkel and President Macron, the faces and the image of that picture told a very clear story of where we are in this moment in history. So, Mika, one you know we're faced with a very realistic possibility that the president of the United States is going to be one of the few people to embrace him at the G20. That the European leaders may shun him now. The Chinese, the Russians, some some of the others who have uh, no values uh, element in their foreign policy um, may 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 also sort of treat him, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, just in the you know course of doing business uh, in a not so bad way, but but it you know it is going to compound what happened in France, as Rula said, and it is going to make Trump seem even more like an outlier with our allies, don't you think? I think that's right. I mean, you think how far we've fallen from the Bush administration talking about we should put together a league of democracies to Trump, who's like voluntarily taking America out of that and joining the League of Autocrats. We have unilaterally abandoned the people that we have traditionally thought of as our closest friends because of our shared values and embraced the countries that, or Trump has, embraced the countries that we've traditionally thought of as our adversaries. All the while, sort of ignoring America's long history of not liking those countries. So, you know, I think I wonder what's behind all this. Obviously, Russia had been courting Trump a very long time. But when Kushner was so gung-ho on 
enriching this deal and creating this back channel with the Saudis. Um, some of the things that we haven't talked about yet with Michael Flynn trying to get the civilian Saudi nuclear deal during inauguration itself. You have to wonder if there is a profit motive there for the Trump family and their associates in aligning the way that they do. You know, Mika raised a good point here, Emily. We've gone from uh, the Bush administration's alliance of democracies and the early Trump administration's focus um, on the axis of adults to Trump's own creation, which is a kind of axis of assholes, where he has focused in on some really bad people around the world. MBS is one. BB is one. Putin is one. Uh, Duterte is what you know. He's he. You know, Erdogan. You know, the only one he sat laughing with and at the at the European meeting was 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 Erdogan. Um, and uh, this is you know this is a kind of a an interesting choice for an American president to make. But maybe it's politically a good one because there's so many assholes in the American electorate. Well, it's, it's funny you said axis of assholes. I was like, that would be the worst Marvel movie ever. All axis the villains of- coming. <laughs> the axis of assholes. It is the worst Marvel movie ever. We, I mean, yeah, I just, is yeah. Donald Trump a you know a comic book villain or what? He really is. Like I always assume, like he's in the back eating his like Hagen Dazs, like twirling his imaginary evil mustache and plotting his revenge. I mean. If there, if there is somebody, if there is a leader who is just pure evil, Trump will buddy up next to him. It's just, it's, it's expected at this point. I, none of this is, I mean, is anyone shocked at this point? Of course he's going to meet with Putin at the G20. None of this is, is even shocking, which I find really, really disheartening, that this is who he is aligning with and de facto aligning our country with. Yeah, and this is this is this is who we've connected with. You know, really, you bring up a good point about about MBS making his little tour of the of the Middle East, um, and because the, that big Tunisian banner that you talk about showed MBS uh, holding up a, a chainsaw, um, and and it's and it suggests, you know, that 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 you know that that we are forgetting the power of the people who are being held down by these regimes and how fearful these regimes are of those people, which, of course, is what led uh, the Saudis to go after Khashoggi in the first place. Um, But, you know, a story came out today um, that may exacerbate that even further, uh, and that is that the Trump administration uh, actually has topped by a rather substantial amount the use of drones um, over the Obama administration, which, of course, is deeply hated by populations. Now, you know, some of this is Pakistan. Some of this is um, uh, Sudan. But but the, a lot of the, the resentment to these U.S. policies, and a lot of it was in, in Yemen, for example, um, comes from decisions like this that, that sort of take place beyond the watchful eye or the not so watchful eye of the American media. And it's really, it's your spot on, David. It really concerns me deeply. And I'm sure anybody that studied the phenomena of, that studied the history of the Arab world, the Muslim world, or the history of radicalization, it all stems from the fact that these Arab oppressive regime 
used their ruthlessness, their despotism to crack down on and rule with an iron fist. Uh, the most sold book in the Arab world is Milestone. It's written by a doctor. Uh, Milestone was written by an average doctor who was arrested, was raped, was tortured in prison in Egypt eight years ago. And that is still the most well-read book. In his book, he has one idea, which is basically to fight these regimes, basically the jihad, and then to fight their backers. And he described their backers are even worse than them. Now we are radicalizing an entire group of people simply because, first of all, we are backing their regimes. We're uh, defending them if they murder their own people. They treat their own people like slaves. And that's, this is the idea that we keep missing. Hamad bin Salman killed Khashoggi, not because of his only idea. He thought he owns his life. He can dispose of his life as he wished, and nobody should open their mouth. And the fact that Trump endorsed that kind of behavior and, and, and defended it, that makes us allies with these kind of... That's why the Tunisians, the Egyptians, the people who stood up in the street demanding democracy and dignity, and they have no way to go, will more and more embrace the idea that only violence, only violence, because Jamal was killed for simply writing. Only violence will be the solution. I am scared that idea will become more popular with time. And what we don't understand, Europeans understand this very, very clearly and carefully. They know that if they will endorse these kind of uh, policies, let's call them policies and behaviors and aberrations, then this will embolden the jihadists on the other side. This will help the jihadists. It will make the case for ISIS and Al-Qaeda, who always said, well, there's no difference between us and them. We're all the same. We commit crimes, except on this end, we will defend you somehow. And it scares me that this become a popular idea. I love that the Tunisians are going to the street and the Egyptians and others. And it's shaming the Americans. Let's be honest. Uh, the Europeans are leading the way. They are trying to send a message that if we don't do anything, we will be, there will be a tsunami in terms of national security and stability of the region, and we will all pay the price. I, You know, I wish we could go on and talk about this. We've got a limited amount of time, and I want to come back to it as we can over time. But, but let me, you know, focus in the last few minutes on wrapping up on a dimension of this that we haven't really talked about. Um, and and that is the abuse of these women um, in the Saudi um, prisons. Somehow... Um, it it did not make a lot of news in the United States that this report came out, and it turned out that these women dissidents who had been rounded up as part of this overall crackdown uh, were actually being tortured and raped and 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 beaten. And I had kind of thought, Corey, that what was going to happen was that the Saudis would lay off for a while, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, that they would not, you know, pile on, make things worse. And and what could actually be worse than, you know, human rights abuses and torture against women who are demanding these minimal things? And yet they didn't. They, they've, they've kept plowing ahead with this. And I, you know, I, I, you got to blame it first on the Saudis, but somehow they think it's not going to affect their critical relationships. 
And, you know, I'm just, you know. Yeah, I think Rula made a really, really important point, which is that the lesson that people in Saudi Arabia and other repressive societies are learning is that peaceful political change by peaceful uh, representations for civic rights and a political voice are none of those efforts um, get you anywhere, that only violence is going to create the change. And that is exactly the Al-Qaeda argument. So the choice, there is an intrinsic connection between governance and terrorism and the lack of of paths for peaceful political change fuel the notion that only violence can change this and violence will pick up. I, I think that's a really, really important point, and I thank her for making it so clearly. Mika, I'm just wondering what your views are on this, but, but particularly the, the, the fact that where is the U.S. policy community on this story? I mean, it seems to be absent without leave, but... Yeah, I'm... I think there are a few Middle East experts who have been sounding the alarm on this for quite some time, including the brilliant Tammy Wittes over at Brookings, who's been constantly raising this issue. But what this says to me is that Kushner's advice to the Saudis was essentially right, that for all the outrage over Khashoggi, it's there were other things that they could, in fact, get away with. I don't know if this is a reflection of the lack of women in the national security community or in the Middle East commentariat, that no one is paying attention to this. Um, But it seems to me that it is saying to people, those of you who try to use peaceful protests to bring about change, to advocate for political reforms, that the policy community isn't going to be there for you when your lives are on the line. I think that's really dangerous. Um, and, you know, I, I look forward to seeing more of our male colleagues who opine on Middle East making this a bigger issue than they have so far. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm trying. Present company excluded. You, know, I'm, I'm, you I'm, good I, and great, David Rothkopf, uh, are the gold standard. Oh, well, you're, I, that, I wasn't seeking that, but I, I beg your pardon. What was that? Could you say that one more time? No. <laughs> um, I could, but <laughs> no, the no, no. other David of Deep State Radio would strike me from afar. Yeah, no, that's true. Well, he'll be back next week and he'll have his opportunity to do that. Do do the, do that just uh, then, you know, Emily. You live out in in another world out there on the on on the West Coast, and uh, yes. one of the things that w- makes me so excited about the fact that we have got this new podcast coming up, uh, beside the fact that you're going to have on it a whole new group of people with very strong views who are informed and interesting and really shaping U.S. public opinion, is that you're not living inside the the beltway you know and 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 the question is out there do these issues even resonate well they do out here more so than probably in dc i mean the administration doesn't really have a strong view on women anyway so the fact that this isn't making a huge blip isn't as shocking but i you know over here on our coast you know 
people are louder about these issues and they are trying to raise it. They are trying to amplify the message. And I'm excited. That to me is very exciting because when you don't see the change within the government, it's, it's at least empowering and heartening to see that people do care about these issues and people do want to affect change. And so to be able to have those conversations and to elevate it and to see what we can do as a community, as all of us, is, is important. And I think it gives us voice and it gives us some hope. But, yeah, these issues, def- I mean, it's also L.A. and we're, you know, we like to talk about these things, you know. We're a little less leaning anyway, so we're... Well, I think it's loud about it. There's a tendency in in Washington. We're not quite as narcissistic as the president himself, but there is this kind of Washington narcissism, which believes that the only thing that matters is when somebody, you know, who used to be an expert or who has a high level job says something, then that resonates. And so there's X number of political scientists and X number of international experts or X number of Middle East experts who are entitled to speak on an issue. Um, And uh, and and that's all that matters. But you know, one of the things that strikes me, and this may be seen by, you know, folks out there as a really sort of lousy metric, is that the, the, the impact of, of what they say on public opinion in the United States, not to mention the fact that there are a lot of people out there with valid points of view. And, you know, a lot of those guys who are out there saying X or Y or Z or the women who are out there saying X or Y or Z within the Beltway are speaking to an echo chamber of a few thousand people. And a lot of the people on the West Coast who are very well informed are speaking to communities of hundreds of thousands or millions of people and driving uh, political opinion in the United States much more effectively. And people denigrate it, but that's how national opinions are formed, right? It's really interesting because especially during the election, there was a lot of critics to the, you know, L.A., the Hollywood entertainment community saying they basically didn't have a right to speak. And where was their expertise to raise their opinion and to raise their voice, which to me just showed what a threat it was to have people who had a voice, who had that impact. You look at look at like Taylor Swift and I'll bring T. Swift into the conversation at her when she talked about the elections. She talked about Tennessee and getting people out to vote and the thousands of people that went out and registered because she said this is important. And I think it just shows the power of celebrity and the power of, of that voice saying, hey, this is important. This is, this is something you should focus on. And to me, that's always a good thing. And I just, and as much as, as my host kept getting criticism about it, I realized how much good they were doing and how they were really making a change and making an impact. Just one second. Corey, Taylor Swift is a singer. Corey, you, you need to know this before you come to my house for Thanksgiving. I'm just telling you now. My sister would have briefed me up in time for me to come out of my cave and <laughs> and realize that there has been music released since I Dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair in 1853. Okay, cool. This will be a sing-along. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, uh, uh, that. by the way, I Dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair is a is a, is a, is a it's a classic, Corey, um, and that's why we we need that perspective. Uh, look, uh, this has been a great discussion on a very hard set of issues. We're not going to leave these issues alone. You know, I, I think the whole premise of the policies of Trump and Kushner uh, and of the Saudis is that people don't pay attention 
They don't care. There is no stick to itiveness, and they can do egregious things, and it will not, in the long term, pay a price. And I think that is true if the people who are shaping opinion, involved in opinion shaping, stop talking about it. And I don't think we can afford to stop talking about it, but for all the reasons we've talked about here, if it leads to um, uh, uh, further instability in the region, if it leads to injustice, if it leads to divisions in our alliance, if it leads to the empowerment of bad people, um, uh, if it leads to the empowerment of bad regimes, um, uh, it or if it reveals character of our partners. Uh, that should be a warning to us regarding future policies, then we need to bring these things up and discuss them and keep an eye on them even even while the stories are fading elsewhere. And that's why we did it. Uh, we welcome you to join us again sometime soon uh, on Deep State Radio. We're moving this week towards more podcasts, including the one we mentioned with uh, Emily, uh, which is called uh, Washington for uh, Beautiful People as a play on that. That's such a great title. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, Emily... Uh, um, uh, is going to bring us and connect us in to a new community, but you're also going to connect in people from D.C. into that community, Absolutely. right? Yeah, I've, I'm going to tap a lot of friends and be nudgy and pushy and make sure that they come on and, and talk about what's going on. And we are going to launch our series of one-on-ones. I do have to say, by the way, and Corey or Mika or somebody may want to add something to this, but we were going to launch our one-on-one high-profile interview series, sort of travels in the deep state, if you will, uh, last week. Uh, And we had one set up, and it was with General Mike Hayden. And the the day that we were supposed to interview him, um, uh, he took ill. He had a stroke. Uh, And I just got to say, you know, all the best values we talk about here on this show um, were embodied or are embodied in in my mind in Mike Hayden. He is a remarkable guy, a patriot, public servant, somebody willing to speak truth to power, has played a vital role during this Trump era by doing so. Um, And I don't know, Corey or Mika or somebody else did, if anybody wants to add anything to that, I certainly hope he gets well soon. I, too, hope he heals quickly. He's been a strong and an important voice. Yeah. So, um, Mike, feel better soon. Uh, But we're going to launch that as well. So there'll be more from us. Go to DeepStateRadioNetwork.com to find out more details and also to become a member because, you know, we could use your support and you could use all the extra benefits of membership, which in a world like this uh, are increasingly important. Uh, and, you know, face it, Deep State Radio Network is the coolest place to go and get your foreign policy or national security uh, or political news. We are an alternative, not your father's uh, foreign uh, policy or affairs or world affairs publication, but something new with new voices and more diverse voices. Um, so come back soon. Uh, and thank you to Corey and Rula and Mika and Emily. Uh, and do, in addition to joining us on the next podcast of of Deep State Radio. Join Emily on her next podcast, um, uh, uh, her first podcast, which will come out later this week. Uh, Bye-bye, everybody. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. 
Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.